our next topic here. What's well, a really a continuation of the same topic? It's uh, we're talking about time. So that was two whole weeks ago that we were talking about time. Uh, anybody remember what the essential nature of time is? Yeah. Exponential or linear or linear? Is linear time right? Yeah, linear. That's right, linear. So what's that mean? So it starts in one place, ends in another place, like a line, right? And what is the the world's view of time if they're consistent with their worldliness? Yeah, cyclical, right. And what's that mean? It means that time goes in cycles and it never ends. So that's manifested in reincarnation. It's manifested in karma um, and on a whole lot of other like Eastern mystic religions. Karma. They don't believe that it ever time ever ends. So, yeah, but we believe that it does. Uh, it begins and it ends because God says it does, and, it, and that really happened. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, uh, and God will discontinue at least this phase of history. There will be an end when God comes and judges the world. So, yeah, and then we started talking about redeeming the time. We have a responsibility as Christians to redeem time. Uh, what does redeeming something mean again? I think I've said this a few times. When you redeem something, what do you do? You bring it back from its um, state of depravity. Yeah, oh, oh, but let's say you redeemed a coupon. Like, oh, like you're not really bringing a coupon from its state of the. Take that value of it. Yeah, it's almost a cent. Yeah, it's like it has a dollar value, and you go in, you turn it in, and you receive something back for it, right? Sure. Something, something of that monetary value, whether it's a Big Mac or chicken Someone's nuggets. Like extracting a honeycomb. Do what? Something like extracting a honeycomb. When you take the honey out of the comb, it's two different things now. I, yeah. One is empty, and one the other one. Right. I, I could see what you're saying with that. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So really, to to uh, water it all down, like redeeming something is to buy something back. Okay. And so there's something that was yours originally, but you lost it. Uh, and then it was returned to you, or you got it back somehow. Uh, maybe it was stolen from you, like in the case of Adam. Adam gave up his inheritance voluntarily, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, and it may be uh, possible for you to save up enough money or whatever it is to buy whatever you lost back, right? And if you can't earn that much on your own, maybe someone else, a relative, can provide you with the redemption price. Does this sound familiar? Yes, it does. So in the Old Testament, this relative was called what? There was an actual name for this person, huh? Yeah, a what redeemer? If you look in the book of Ruth, who was Boaz? He was Ruth's kinsman, redeemer. You don't remember that? No. You haven't read Ruth in a while, I guess. So what's kinsman mean? A relative who is a redeemer, right? And so the kinsman redeemer was that person who uh, also served as the family judge and as the blood avenger. That means he had the legal authority to kill a person who had killed his nearest kin. Okay, so uh, with that being said, who is do we have a kinsman redeemer? Yeah, it's Jesus Christ. That's right. And huh? My grandma. No, wouldn't be your grandma. How did he buy back the world? What did he do? Just give me some of the. He did a lot of things, but give me some of the things. He died. 
He died. Yeah. Dying when he died. What did like? What was so significant about him dying? uh, I could die, but I wouldn't be redeeming anything. Paid the price for our sin. Yeah, exactly. So first of all, he obeyed the law in his life, uh, and he bore the punishment associated with breaking God's covenant. His whole life was covenantal, right? Uh, And how was his life covenantal? Y'all remember the uh, the covenantal model? From two weeks ago? What's an easy way to... Theos, theos right. So what, what's the T in Theos mean? Um, cross? <laughs> <laughs> cross doesn't start with a T, though. Oh, oh. I thought, I thought the... So the covenantal model, I explained it. It's easy to remember when you use the acronym Theos. Remember, huh? Transcendence. Yeah, tra- theos is transcendent. That means that uh, the maker of the covenant is over the person or the thing he's making the covenant with. Uh, he's also imminent. He's also with them. What's the H mean again? Y'all should have notes on this. No, not holy. In a covenant, there's transcendence. That means there's a, a king and a vassal. There's a suzerain and a vassal. And then hierarchy means that oh, H is hierarchy. I just gave it away. So that's hierarchy. That means there's a king, there's a vassal, and then there, what's the E mean? Uh, ethics. Ethics. That means in the covenant there are laws, there are stipulations. Uh, how do we keep this covenant? So we have the standard of the law. What does O mean? Oaths. Right. That means there are penalties, blessings and cursings for breaking the covenant. And then what does S mean? No. Succession. Oh, sorry. You had it, didn't you? Sorry. Yeah, succession. That means that this covenant is actually going somewhere. Uh, that means it, it has a future. Okay? And so, how is Jesus' life covenantal? How can we put all of those categories with Jesus? So, Jesus' life was covenantal in the fact that, number one, he was the transcend- transcendental God. or tran- Yeah, that's the right word. Transcendental God. In, and he was also a man in whom the fullness of the Godhead was present. So that's eminence. So transcendence above, eminence close to you. Okay? Uh, number two, uh, he was the son who went about his father's business. That's hierarchy. Father, son. Who's, who's higher up in the father-son relationship? Are they equal as far as authority is concerned? No, the father is higher. And so he was the son who went about his father's business as his father's authorized representative. That's hierarchy. Uh, I'd have to spell it myself. Hierarchy. Um, Then we have ethics. So I kind of explained earlier how this relates to ethics. Uh, what did he do as far as how is how is Jesus's life relate to the ethical part of the he covenant? Perfect. He was perfect. How do we measure? How do we measure perfection? Sin. And like That's the lack of perfection. Yeah. But how do we measure it? What's the standard by which we measure perfection? God's law. The God's law. That's right. He did his father's will. He obeyed his father's law. And because of that, he was given all authority in heaven and on earth to rule and to reign. Okay, uh, number four, ethic or oaths, sanctions. Um, 
How does that relate to Jesus' life? Lucas? That's like the bad stuff. Like, Do what? That's the bad stuff in his life, like the cross. Okay. How does that relate to... So, so when you have an oath, that means if you uh, keep the terms and conditions of the covenant, blessings are bestowed upon you, right? Well, if you don't, then curses are bestowed upon you. But Jesus was perfect. He, complete, he obeyed God's law completely. So how does the cross relate to that? That doesn't sound like a good blessing to me, dying on a cross. How, do, how does that happen? Why did he receive cursings for completely obeying the law? Jude? Yeah, he was doing it. He, he experienced curses vicariously. That means on behalf of another. We are the lawbreakers. We are the ones that deserve uh, hell, punishment, the cross, all of those negative sanctions. But Jesus took them for us. Right. And uh, the succession. How does Jesus' life relate to succession? Succession means that this thing's going places. There's a future. Lucas? The promise moves on for generations. And it's the, uh, his death affects not just one like Christians from yeah that's one way it does yeah oh, well, give me another one where's Jesus now hopefully this will help where's Jesus now is he in the ground is he dead where is he at in heaven what's he doing in heaven hmm? preparing a place for us in what capacity what status does he have in heaven is he a servant? Is he a room sweeper? Is he a janitor? He's, he's a king. That's right. So how did he become a king? He inherited God's kingdom. Remember, God the Father gave him the world, gave him all of these things to inherit and to run for all eternity. That's succession. Wouldn't you say so? That, that's going places, yeah. So and at the end, he will deliver this inheritance back to God when he perfects it. That's 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty eight. I'll read it for you. It says, And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So the history of redemption has three phases. It's definitive, progressive, and final. I'll write this on the board for us. When I talk about history... I'm talking about time. Definitive. I'm getting this right. Definitive. Okay. And then we have progressive. And then final. Stages of what? Hmm? Of redemption. The history of redemption. Final. I'll move out of the way. There you go. So <clears throat> that's the history of redemption, and we can easily identify them. So we have Christ's resurrection as definitive. It was a definite point in time in the past. Uh, and then we have the, uh, the work of the church in history. That's progressive. We're moving somewhere. We're moving. Uh, we have a positive trajectory, right? And then I see a tennis ball floating across the room. Uh, and then, uh, what's, what do you think the final would be? Um, judgment. The judgment, that's right. The final judgment at the end of cursed 
time. Right now, our time is mostly cursed, right? We all die. Uh, we all get gray hair. Uh, we get sick. Uh, we, we don't have time to do everything that we would want to do for God's kingdom because we only have, at most, you know, 100 years. It used to not be the case. People used to live 500, 600, 800, 900 years. They had a lot more time. Time was a lot less cursed than it is now for us, right? But that's going to change at the final judgment when time won't be cursed anymore, and then we will live forever. We'll be able, we'll have all of the time in eternity to exercise dominion. Yes, sir? Uh, my great-grandma is currently 96, and she goes dancing every Sunday. Well, they, they, amen. Apparently her time is less cursed than <laughs> a, a lot of other people. That's great. Uh, yeah, so, all right, so now let's talk about each of these. Let's start with the definitive. Okay, so Jesus was born perfect, and he lived a perfect life through suffering. And he died on the cross, and then he rose again. He was definitively perfect, right? He was progressively perfect. He was finally perfect. He was perfect in every way. And Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9 says it like this. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. And so he gave himself up as a ransom in order to create his own special people. Okay? And Titus 2.14 says it like this, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Okay? And so the ideal of redemption is serving. That's the ideal of it. And as Jesus says, he says, Whoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, that means he came not to be served, but he came to serve and and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's the connection. Service connects with redemption. Okay? Ransom, those are all redemption words. What's a ransom? Like give his life as a ransom. Just give me a typical definition of that. Like, we can probably think of any crime show, and we can think of what a ransom is. Like if somebody kidnaps you and they're asking for money to give you back, that's like ransom money? Yeah, pay the ransom money. You know, they, they take a, what do they do? They cut the, uh, the, the, fun, the letters out of magazines, and they splice it together. Give me $2 million by midnight, or, you know, or else. Or, you know, your daughter gets killed or whatever. They want ransom money. Right, and that's the idea here. Not the kidnapping part, but the ransom part, right? So Jesus, there was a bond priced for us, right? We, we lost our inheritance through Adam, and the only way that we could be freed from that slavery and bondage to sin and to death and to get our inheritance back is for somebody to pay the ransom money. And Jesus did that with his own life. That's what it took, okay? And he bought us out from the bondage of the curse of the law. Galatians 3.13 it says this. I would just advise, if you want to take notes, just jot the scripture references down, and you can study them later. Uh, Galatians 3.13, for instance, it says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So, because he bought his people out of bondage to the curses of the law, now they're enabled to obey the law. Now we can obey the law for its, its real and rightful purpose, Right? And we can get the promised blessings of the law now, right? When we are not, we were not under the blessings of God, what good would obeying the law do for us? 
None. We, it's not like we can get salvation from obeying the law. There's no way. Now that salvation has been purchased for us through Christ's uh, active and passive obedience. And now we get to, in a life of blessing and being in God's family, we get to really use the law for what it was originally intended for, to be a tool for dominion. Right? That's great news. Um, so the law... Did you get your hand up? Uh, yeah. So the law is therefore the basis of twofold judgment, blessing and cursing. So it kills those who rely on their own works to save them. That's how we were before Christ. While it gives life to those people who trust in Jesus. So obedience to God's law, check this out. Obedience to God's law gives us more time. It, it, almost, it, it doesn't reverse the curse completely, obviously, not yet. But it does reverse some aspects of the curse, right? Uh, here's an obvious example. One of the Ten Commandments. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. So there's a commandment that comes with that explicit promise. That your days may be long. It sounds like you're getting more time to me, right? That your days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. So honoring your mom and dad uh, affects, uh, uh, affects your relationship with time on this earth. God says so. Have you ever thought of those two things on your own as being linked together? I don't. Not naturally. You know, whenever I first read this command, I'm like, how are these two things related at all? Well, they are. They're related in many ways, uh, especially if your parents are Christian parents, which all of yours are. You know, listening to them, honoring them, uh, obeying them while you're in their household does lead to a longer life. It does lead to fruitful blessings, right? Keeps you out of jail right? Keeps you from getting killed out in the street. If you generally obey God's law, right? It keeps you from um, getting around the wrong types of people that could uh, have the potential of being around them to shorten your lifespan, right? All of those things are linked together. And, and, and so much more I can talk about with that. Uh, but yeah, there's a, a, a commandment with that specific promise to lighten the curse of time and for time to be a blessing to you. All right. Um, time isn't only linear, it's also, uh, it's progressive, okay? It's definitive, it's progressive, um, and, and we should never adopt modern science's view of time as linear. See, science says that time is linear. I'm talking about modern secular science, right? They say time is linear uh, and because they say that the world is running down, right? And at the end of time... When, you know, the, the heat death of the universe is going to happen, when our sun swells up so big that it's just going to swallow up the earth and vaporize it, and that'll be the end of us. That's what the humanistic scientist thinks that uh, will put an end to time, right? So that view of time is incorrect. And to see time as linear without progress towards God's final judgment is to view time as impersonal. You remember a couple of weeks ago I talked about personal versus impersonal. Can someone quickly remind me what that means? What's the diff? Like if uh, something is personal, if the universe is personal, what's that mean, Addie? It, it, like you, you know it, like you has feelings and stuff. Does the universe has feelings? Not the universe. Not the universe, but I'm saying that the universe is personal. What does that mean when I say that? 
personal versus imp- when a person is personal, what does that mean? Just try to switch the examples. They interact with you. There is meaning in your interaction. There's meaning in your relationships. So take that to the universe. How is the universe personal? What gives it meaning? God gives it meaning. Why, is, why does that make the universe personal? Because God is personal. He's a person. He's three persons, right? That's what makes the universe personal. So when a universe is impersonal, as modern scientists think it is, does anything in the universe really have meaning or purpose at the end of the day? How could it? Right? No one is, no creator has assigned it any sort of purpose or meaning. Right? And so what modern science tries to do, they try to inject their own meaning into it. Uh, which, at the end of the day, I mean, if the sun just swallows up the world and we're all dead... Why even inject meaning into that? What's the point? We all die, and that's the end of time, <coughs> right? And so it basically means that time is c- going to commit suicide in the future, and it's going to take out everybody else with it, right? So Jesus' payment at the cross definitively releases time from bondage, okay? So from the time of the curse in the garden... Time was put under bondage. Time was cursed along with everything else in creation because of man's sin. And from the time of Jesus' resurrection, the process of time has been progressively released from the bondage of sin. How has that happened? Through the covenantal faithfulness of God's redeemed people by the Holy Spirit. That's how it happens. And through God's faithful rewarding of their faithfulness. So as we are more faithful to God... God continues to reward us with more blessings. And in Isaiah, we can see that one type of reward for these blessings is a longer life. I'm trying to remember the exact passage in Isaiah. It's Isaiah 60-something that says, uh, you know, an old man or a young, an old man will die. Oh, man, how's it go? A, a young man will die at age 100. And or and a, and a, an old man. Well, you don't know the passage I'm talking about. Uh, like if y'all look, one of y'all look that passage up online What's and give verse? it to me. It's Isaiah sixty something. Just put those words in. An old man or young man will die as a hundred. I'd like to see what that is. I don't have that in my notes. But it's a great scripture verse. That's a promise to us that Jesus definitively uh, made possible as he was resurrected from the dead. Is Jesus constrained by time at all now? No, no he lives forever. When the time is right, the Lord will make it happen? No, that's not it. It, it literally had those words I just mentioned in it. No more shall but there be an infant in, 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 who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill up his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old but shall be accursed. Baron, study Bible. No, wait. Okay, that's yeah. Yeah, so, so read it again. Read it a little bit louder and a little bit slower. No more <laughs> shall there be in... It's an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Thank you. Yes. So, that's a promise to us, that that we are going to live well past uh, 
how long we live now. One day, our children will, grandchildren, whoever. Yeah. So you remember one day, way back when, people were living 800, 900 years, and God said, I'm going to shorten their days. That's an act of cursing. But since Jesus has uh, done his work of redemption, eventually I think we're going to come to a time in history where people will really live that long again. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. Uh, there was... seemed like a few. There was, yeah, there weren't very many. A couple of dozen, maybe. It wasn't that many generations where... It, it progressively got shorter. If you look at in through Genesis, you'll see that their, their years of life slowly started going down. Right. Yeah, the average lifespan was like... Well, not even average. Like if someone, you could say someone lived a long time when they made it to 60. That was a long time, right? Uh, So now, I mean, people are living, the median age is 78. But I mean, that includes, they include infant mortality in that too. So if a baby dies, they factor that into the, the, the numbers. So really, any adult that lives, I think the number is actually much higher. Uh, 80s, 90s. I know lots of people who are already like living well into their 80s and 90s and still dancing and still like carrying on a normal life. How old is Papa? 72. Yeah, he hikes in the mountains. Yeah, he walks. He's, uh, you know, he doesn't seem like he's all decrepit and it's about to fall apart or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, so we can begin to see that curse start to get reversed when it comes to time. And so, you know, eventually I think man's, gen- man's genetic code will eventually be healed so that there will be no more miscarriages. Imagine that. Uh, the promise, I think, is also going to be applied to uh, redeem man's domestic- domesticated animals. That's going to affect our animals, too. Our animals will live longer. Our animals will be more healthy. Sick. <laughs> There's a verse where it's got like the lion laying with the lamb. Yeah, and that's a good that's a good picture of what peace you know the the kind of peace on earth is going to happen in the future. I think it's in the same like chapter. Mm-hmm. It's in the same neighborhood. Yeah, and so you know sickness will cease. All of those things will will happen as this curse progressively gets reversed because of what Jesus definitively did. It's progressing. It's happening. Right. Um, let's move on here. Oh, man, there's so much good stuff to talk about here. Uh, oh, I wrote it down down here. Six, Isaiah 65.20, right? That's what it was. Yeah, so the threat of time on man will be cut down. Okay, now, is Isaiah talking about the world after the final judgment? Or is he talking about uh, the world on this side of history where all of these wonderful things are going to happen? Do what? He didn't say otherwise. Right. So you're saying this side? Yeah. Yeah. It's this side of history. Well, I mean, even think about it. Isaiah 65, 20. Let's read this closely. There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For a child uh, shall be an hundred years old, but the sinner, being a hundred years old, shall be accursed. Now, we know our Bibles well enough to say that after the final judgment, there will be no more sinners. There will be no more sin in the world. 
But Isaiah is saying here, but the sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. So that tells me that all of this stuff has to happen before that final judgment, right? Because there are sinners in the picture. Yeah. So it's, it's happening in this side of history. So our great, great, great grandkids or however it goes, they're going to begin to experience all of these things. You know, compared to a thousand years ago, probably all of us are way less sick than our ancestors were, right? It didn't take any, I mean, even since the, maybe the 1920s and the 30s, like if you got some kind of, um, oh, what's it, what is it? Um, I'm trying to to think of the flu or um, strep throat, like that's a bacterial infection. Antibiotics were not invented until the 1930s, 1940s. Spanish flu? Oh, they've had several bouts of Spanish flu. That's about 100 years ago. Yeah. And so even the simple case of strep could kill you. Uh, that happened to a lot of people. Uh, but now we have antibiotics and we have penicillin. So now we don't, all of those things that were such a threat to the lives of people even 100 years ago are not even a threat to us at all. So we're already starting to experience some of the blessings that Jesus uh, attained whenever he was resurrected from the dead. New life for us. So we're already experiencing that. Yeah. Uh, whenever women had babies, the death rate was very high of the baby and the mom. Right. And, and even since the past 100 years, the death rate for moms and infants or babies being born has like plummeted. Now, there's still a death rate, but it's very, very small compared to what it used to be. You know, we have so many, like, uh, so much uh, scientific and, and medical advancements that has uh, occurred over the past few hundred years that has enabled so many more people to live and to flourish uh, in society. It's true, it truly is God's blessings, right? And we have to remember to thank Him for those blessings. Um, the curse is being lifted, slowly but surely. Okay, um... Let me move on here. So we talked about, I kind of talked about progressive too. That's what's happening now. Let's talk about the final manifestation of God's redemption in history. Uh, That's the final judgment. So 1 Corinthians 15, to me, is the go-to biblical passage that speaks of this final redemption. So I'm going to start at verse 24. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God... Even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So when the temporal death is at last destroyed by the eternal second death at the final judgment, the curse of time will be gone forever from covenant keepers. Christians. The curse of time will be totally lifted, right? And we can eat eternally from the true tree of life. Is there going to be in heaven some, or, or, or on earth some tree of life that we have to go to to keep eating from to live? No. no. Who, there, but there will be a tree of life. What or who is this tree of life? Jesus. Really, Jesus, right. That's, that's, who, that's what the tree of life in the garden at the beginning was a type of. It was, that wasn't the real tree of life. The real tree of life was Jesus. He's the real tree of life, which is why we put Christmas trees up. I don't know why some Christians have this big problem with us putting Christmas trees up at Christmas time, but that's what that represents. 
I think some people like think that uh, it has like pagan roots or something, but I don't see it that Didn't way. Martin Luther do the first one? I don't know. I always heard Martin Luther did the first one. He may have. I don't know. But I know that's that's why so many Christians put up or, or the, how the tradition started. I don't think hardly any Christian knows why they put up a Christmas tree anymore other than it looks nice and it's tradition. But that's the real reason why the Christmas tree is put up, and that's why I endorse it. Because that Christmas tree, if we look at it in our living room, we're going to see uh, that's a representation of Jesus Christ, the real tree of life. And you know those little ball ornaments? That's fruit from the tree. What's the what's fruit of the tree? Oh, you don't like the ball ornaments? No, I like the ball ornaments. He has, he I just has don't his, like, just like little snowman. Oh, you can put other stuff on it, too. But, yeah, I'm not saying you have to have the ball ornaments. That's not really the point. But the, the origin of the ball or, ornaments is they look like fruit. And what is the fruit? It's us. It's the church. We are the fruit. I am the vine. You are the branches. Yeah, look, it's me. And that's probably why they have like names on them and stuff. Yeah, this is coming together. Yeah, so that's, that's the real idea behind the Christmas tree. Because Jesus is the tree of life. He's the healer of the nations. And uh, Jesus' parable of the wheat and the tares describes God's process of that ethical separation that happens at the final judgment. So history is a continuity that ends with a great discontinuity. Y'all understand what I mean by that? Like things are continuous in history until the end where God breaks that old pattern of history and starts a new one. So we can see that that schism there, that division, is discontinuity. That happened earlier when Christ died and was resurrected. There was a continuity there, and then God placed a discontinuity in the middle of it. And now we're in like a new phase, so to speak, of, uh, of the church and of the people of God. Right? And we know that because obviously Israel is not really a thing anymore. So that just shows that that old order has passed away, and it's been uh, now the church fills that role of God's people. Um, so going back to the wheat and the tares, what's up with the wheat and the tares? Well, Jesus explains that there a man plants wheat in a field. All right, This is a story that he, he gives as an illustration to tell us what goes on in the kingdom. So a man plants wheat in the field, and, uh, and Jesus told the disciples that this symbolized the whole world. Okay, so picture the, the, the wheat field as the world. And at night, an enemy comes and uh, plants tares and weeds in the garden. Who does the enemy represent? Satan. Yeah, Satan. So Satan comes in and plants uh, weeds in, in, the, in the field. And so there's weeds in the world. And so these two crops spring up together, Right? And the servants of the field asked the owner of the field if they should pull out the weeds. Who are the servants of the field? No, we're the, we're the wheat. Angels, that's right. Angels. So, and what does the owner say? The owner says, no. Who's the owner? God. God, right. Says, no, while, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root also up the wheat with them. Uh, Let both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. So the servants of the field, they're the angels. They're the ones who execute final judgment at the end of history. 
okay? Now, God is executing it, but God always uses means. He always uses delegated authority. He uses other uh, beings and creatures to do his will, okay? So both the wheat and the tares grow up in the field until the end. So what does that mean for the world? Let's take it out of its typological story. Christians and pagans, they coexist and live and grow and move and have their being in the world all together until the end. Okay, So there isn't going to be a premature removal of the tares from the wheat. Right? That, doesn't, that means that God's not going to send his servants to go pick the, wheat, the weeds out first and leave the tares in the ground uh, because it would damage the entire field. Okay, and so, uh, huh? Is that kind of what the rapture is? That's what what rapture theology and and premill dispensational theology teaches. All right, so there's going to be a rapture of the church. So the the wheat is going to be pulled out before the weeds, and the field's just going to be full of weeds at that point. That's what they teach. But this parable says the opposite. No, don't pull any of it out until the end. And when the end comes, they can be pulled out together. So what does that tell us? That means at the end, at the final judgment, God is going to judge both the weeds and the wheat all together. Okay? Um, So there is no such thing. There is a rapture, but it's not like how, like, Left Behind puts it. I don't know if y'all know about any of that stuff. Like, uh, you know, that there's going to be an early rapture of the church. The church is going to be caught up in the air and uh, left behind. You know, the Christians going to be driving in their cars and they'll be raptured up. And, you know, these cars will still be running down the road and they'll crash because there's no people in them. Or you know the guy who created the Left Behind series is the dad of the guy who directs the Chosen? Yeah. I did not know that. That's very interesting. It's interesting that the creators of The Chosen, are they seem to be Mormon, which is even weirder. Wait, like, they are? They seem to be, yeah. They, like, they have a lot of like Mormon backgrounds and roots. Oh. They, never, they haven't come out explicitly with that, but uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints has like, endorsed them. And uh, there was one line in The Chosen where Jesus said, I am the law. That's not a biblical phrase. Yeah. That's something that's in the Book of Mormon. So yeah, so there's a lot. There's a, there's some issues with the chosen. That's in, I didn't know that fact. So that's weird how all those things are related. So anyway, yeah. So um, so what should we conclude about the redemption of history? First, history was definitive in that uh, by the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, He definitively did a work in history. That took place in history, and nothing else will ever take place in the middle of history to match this particular continuity, uh, this continuity of death and resurrection, this continuity of death unto life. That's what Christianity is all about. It says, First uh, Corinthians fifteen fourteen says, "If and if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain." So this was the greatest discontinuity in history, greater than the fall of man in Genesis. That was another discontinuity. But this one's bigger. Uh, name another continuity in the Old Testament. In Genesis. There's quite a, there are a couple of them in Genesis. Another one is the flood. That would be one. What's another one? The creation. Well, well, it's not really discontinuity. There was never a start of a continuity. That's just the beginning of it. But yeah, so uh, the fall. 
Do I? The Red Sea. Uh, I don't know if I would. I guess you maybe could qualify say that that's a discontinuity. It was a miracle. It was miraculous. Um, uh, calling uh, Israel out of Egypt and that whole the whole story of the Exodus uh, can be listed that way. When he scrambled um, languages with those own people. Babel. Yeah, I think Babel could be uh, listed as a discontinuity. I don't think there are major ones, but those are big ones. So yeah, so um, but the biggest discontinuity is Christ in His death and resurrection and His ascension. Um, <clears throat> all right. So with the remaining little bit of time we have left, I'm gonna try to cover this. Uh, let's talk about representative time. Representative time. Uh, all human government, the family, the church and the state is representative. That's point two of God's covenantal model, the hierarchy. <coughs> so both God and Satan exercise their power in history through human representatives. Right? So the covenant keepers represent God. The covenant breakers represent Satan. So neither God nor Satan needs to be physically present on the earth after Jesus' ascension in order for history to be satanic or godly. Y'all understand that? In order, the, neither Jesus nor Satan has to be on the earth uh, for history to be satanic or godly. So this means that no Christian should really believe that Satan is alive and well on planet Earth, except representatively, okay? Uh, commentators say that uh, Satan is represented uh, by the beast or the Antichrist, but they don't teach that Satan physically operates from some secret hideout on Earth, right? This is really important. I'll tell you why. Uh, because Christians who say that the Bible teaches that Satan's kingdom will eventually triumph in history... They never argue that Satan has to be physically present on earth, reigning from one central location in order to do that. Okay? Premillennialists and amillennialists fully understand that Satan's victory in history is a representative victory. Okay? Uh, but what's interesting about this is that premillennialists insist that Jesus Christ has to be physically present on earth, reigning from Jerusalem in order for his history to be, of the future millennium, to be a real and true victory. Okay? Y'all see the issues there? Are y'all even know, do y'all even know what I'm talking about right now? When I say premillennialists or amillennialists, do y'all know what I'm talking about? You can say no. That's okay if you don't. Okay, yeah. So essentially what premillennialism is, I'll give you a quick rundown. Uh, basically, that means, real simple terms, Christians that believe that, believe that Jesus will be coming back before the millennial reign that's, rep that's mentioned in Revelation 20. Okay, Jesus comes back, then there's a millennial reign where Jesus will be here physically on earth, reigning from Jerusalem, uh, and that there'll be a plan, there'll be a redemption plan for Israel, there'll be a re different redemption plan for Christians. It, it's, that's one thing. Uh, amillennialists, can y'all guess what that means just by hearing the word? What's ah mean? No, ah mill. What that no. syllable, ah, no millennium, that's right. Uh, amillennialists believe that there will be no earthly millennium time in, uh, on earth. So how do they interpret Revelation 20 that speaks about a millennium? Well, it's not an earthly millennium, it's a heavenly millennium. 
Okay, So they believe that Jesus Christ uh, is going to come back in the final judgment. But uh, the millennial reign where Jesus rules and has sure victory um, is going to be in heaven. It's not going to be on earth. So you know what that means for earth? It's just going to be defeat. Yeah, defeat. Satan will rule on earth until Jesus comes back and and kicks him out. Okay, Uh, Post-millennialism, what's that mean? Post. Jesus comes back after the millennium. And so post-millennialism says that there is going to be a millennium on earth, but Christ is, doesn't have to be physically present for us. That's what I think it, Isaiah 65 points to. It points to those blessings of the millennial kingdom, this time of great blessing and victory on earth. And then Jesus returns and cleans up just a little segment of satan's minions that still need to be cleaned up so so getting back to our discussion um pre-mill guys believe that you know satan doesn't have to be on earth to uh, have victory over everything but jesus has to be does that make any sense it doesn't make any sense to me uh because they are implicitly arguing that satan has a major advantage over god in history right despite Jesus' resurrection and God's sending of the Holy Spirit. So basically, when Satan's God-hating representatives are faithful to him in history, they win. But when God's representatives are faithful to him in history, they lose. Is Satan more powerful than God? No. No. So this is a very backwards way to view the power of Jesus' resurrection and the Holy Spirit's power in history. So basically, pre-mills are saying that Satan's kingdom is more powerful than God's kingdom. False. Not true. Right? History is inescapably representative. Therefore, if the Bible really does teach that Satan's human disciples are inevitably going to win in history over the church, then Satan must be the true God of history. So Satan's historical victory over the church would have to testify of his continuing exercise of his authority in the New Testament era, despite Christ's redemption and despite his inheritance of the kingdom through his death and resurrection. Okay, so if one person denies this conclusion, then one would also have to deny that the church is the only true representative of God in heaven and on earth after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, who alone is the lawful inheritor of the kingdom of God. One would also have to deny that Christ transferred his kingdom inheritance to the church. He would have to deny Matthew twenty-one forty-three, which says this. It says, Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. He would have to deny that God's earthly inheritance is sure. Uh, this, This is really a scary idea. So if the church can't trust in God's guaranteed permanence of the earthly kingdom inheritance, then how can the individual trust... Uh, in the God-guaranteed permanence of eternal kingdom inheritance? Like, how can we trust that we will receive eternal life, right? If we can't be sure of victory on earth, how can we be sure of victory in eternity, right? So, as you guys grow up uh, into witnesses and servants to Christ's kingdom here on earth, y'all will need to bring out this antithesis, this this separation 
between these two worldviews and between these two opinions, between the church's defeat and the church's victory. Y'all must bear witness to who the true God of history really is. And y'all have to bear witness to who actually redeems the time. Is it God that redeems the time or is it Satan? Y'all have to be witnesses to who that really is. And the people must choose. Uh, what version of dominion theology will Christians choose? Uh, you know, you have to choose. There's no choice. Like, there's no choice but to choose. Y'all understand that? If you don't choose, you still made a choice, right? So not to choose, one, that God has victory. You're basically choosing that Satan has victory. And so we have to go on the Bible with this. We have to go with the Bible and say that there is sure victory for God's people. We have to choose victory.